Thank you. Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel in chapter number 5. 2 Samuel in chapter number 5. Second Samuel in chapter number five, and our text verse will be uh, verses will be verses six and seven in particular, uh, verse number seven. But we will read these verses together, beginning in verse one, and we'll read responsively down through verse number seven. Second Samuel chapter number five and verses one through seven. I'll read verse one. You join me on verse two. And so forth. Let's stand together, please, out of respect for the Word of God and reading God's Word. I'll begin with verse 1. You join me in verse 2 and so forth. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that ledest out. And broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. And together in verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. I want to speak to you on these three words, but he did. But he did. Father, may this be a faith-building message this morning for the saved that are doubting and a certain degree of unbelief is hindering their growth. For the lost who need to believe on Christ as their Savior. For the needy one who needs to believe that you indeed are willing and able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. May our strength be faith and our faith be strengthened not in uh, not in self, but in thee. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. King David was anointed to be king as a teenage lad. It would be several years before he would begin to be promoted. But when a giant named Goliath presented himself and David was thrust on the public stage, it wasn't long until his wisdom was recognized and he began to be promoted. David knew, of course, from his childhood that eventually that would mean being promoted all the way to the throne of the nation. But he also knew that it would be presumptuous for him to claim it prematurely. And so he waited on the Lord. 
during that waiting season, there was a lot of turmoil. Attempts upon his life, assassination attempts. He ran uh, 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 and fled and was a fugitive of, uh, of, uh, for several years. Then finally, upon the death of King Saul and Jonathan, uh, uh, they died in battle the same day. Then a segment of the nation gathered themselves uh, to David and declared him to be their new king. He, in verse 5, in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. After that seven years uh, plus, the nation who had uh, raised up one of uh, one of uh, um, Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, to be their king, found out that Ishbosheth was not a man of character, and finally his own people turned on him and he was assassinated. And the rest of the nation then gathered themselves to unite behind David, recognizing him as their rightful king. This obviously uh, uh, provided uh, a delicate situation to David as a certain portion of the nation of Israel was loyal to David and his household. But another very significant portion of the nation was just recently uh, purporting to transfer their loyalty to David as their leader. And David very wisely said, you know, it wouldn't be a good idea for me uh, to have as my capital uh, here in Judah, my capital here, because it will always kind of wonder and uh, make the folks that live elsewhere maybe wonder, is David, uh, you know, more keen on uh, this folks that he grew up with and, and this where he's from and the people that were uh, with him? And uh, David very wisely said, he said, you know, I need, I need sort of a neutral territory for my capital. And as it, as it was, there was a, a, a piece of land and a, and a strategic city, a fortified city, that had never been conquered in the, uh, in the taking of the promised land. And Joshua led the people into the promised land. It was one of those areas that had never been uh, 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 secured permanently for the nation of Israel. And the Jebusites lived there, and they had quite a reputation, and the city had quite a reputation. And, uh, and David said, you know, that really, that's a, that's a sort of a neutral place between these two regions, and if I set my capital up there, then hopefully uh, no one will feel uh, uh, slighted, if you will. And uh, so he determined uh, to take Jerusalem as his capital. That meant conquering this city. And those who live within uh, thought it to be impregnable. Nobody could uh, possibly conquer this city. The city is such a fortress that when David uh, 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 had designs to go and take the city, the inhabitants of the city mocked him as his efforts being completely futile. And they say at the end of of verse number 6, the inhabitants uh, of the city, the Jebusites, spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither thinking David cannot come in here. There's no way David could conquer this city. And, and, and they said they were mocking David. What they were saying is uh, uh, an army of blind men and crippled men could defend this city. This city is, is uh, it cannot be conquered. 
Not even David. We know David's a man of war, but not even David uh, can take this city. And so they're mocking him. And said, you know, yeah, you have to, you have to uh, conquer all the blind people and all the lame people that, that defend this city. And, uh, they're suggesting, of course, that even blind and crippled people could defend the city. It really doesn't need any defense. It itself is strong enough and impossible, uh, to conquer. However, Joab, David's captain, found a waterway into the city. And through that waterway they entered. And though they said, David, you cannot take this city. He did take the city. And Jerusalem today, according to the word of God, is known as the city of David. The city of David. My my friend, uh, as I read these verses again uh, several weeks ago now, I was reminded how many times the world... How many times our arch enemy, the devil, has come to God's people and says, "It's your, your attempts are futile. I don't even know why you're trying. What are you doing? What are you doing pretending? What are you doing? There's no way. You'll, you're, you'll, you'll never, you'll never conquer. You'll never have victory in your life. You'll never overcome the sin and temptation of your life. You'll, you'll always be defeated. Why you even go to that church house? It's a waste of your time. And that's what the enemy did with David. They mocked him. They said, there's no way you can't conquer this city. It'll it'll remain a stronghold of the enemy. And it can't be done. But he did it. But he did it. And can I say to you, the God of David is my God today. And he's your God today. And greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. I think about Caleb. Numbers 13, the people came to the edge of the promised land and God had told Moses, he said, lead them into the promised land. Moses forfeited the opportunity himself to go, but it's time to go across. Twelve spies, uh, 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 twelve spies were chosen to spy out the land, not to find out if they could go into the land, but the best way to go into the land, it was to be simply a strategic expedition, not one of uh, uh, deciding the... Uh, if the campaign was feasible, but uh, how it should be carried out. But ten of them came back with a negative report and were all up in arms, and they brought back some beautiful fruit from the land. If you remember, uh, uh, clusters of grapes had to be carried on the shoulders of two men, and, and pomegranates, just incredible bounty in this land, known as the land that flows with milk and honey, the promised land. And ten of those men came back and said, oh, it's, a, it's an amazing land. Oh, my goodness. The, uh, the natural resource is incredible. The, the beauty of the land, it's just unbelievable. But there's giants in the land. And we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. And they said in Numbers chapter 13, they said, we, we're not able. We're not able. Uh, they said in verse number 30, uh, 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 in the verses preceding, we're not able. But Caleb stood up in verse 30. He stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able. And there was a controversy. Those who said we can't, and the two who said we can, Joshua and Caleb. And can I tell you, my dear friend, because of the unbelief of that generation, most of you know this already, God judged them for the unbelief and sent them back to wander in the wilderness for a full 40 years Those 20 and older would all die. That entire generation would die off in the wilderness. 
and never uh, get to enjoy the fruits of the promised land. And they, they would die off. And then finally, here we are now, 40 years later. And Joshua is at the helm now. And God, by God's power, the, 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 the river, Jordan River is parted. And they go across and they come to Jericho. And the walls fall down flat. And they uh, 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 defeat Ai. And on and on the campaign goes. And the promised land becomes uh, uh, the land of Israel. And, and, and after 40 years in the wilderness. And then that campaign to take the promised land. Caleb is 85 years old. They get all done and they're starting to divide up the land. And they've conquered the promised land. And start dividing up the land. And Caleb says that. And Joshua, I know I'm 85. He said, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. And he said, you know, I, I remember when we came in here 45 years ago. We came up here. We came up the hill. We went up to the Hebron Heights and, and we saw the valleys out. And he said, I always liked that view. And that's just so beautiful. And he said, uh, Joshua, it'd be all right with you. He said, I want that mountain right there. Joshua said, well, there's some, you know, some Anakims up there. He said, I don't know. Baby. He, said, I, he said, I know. He said, giants don't bother me. He said, I got a giant killing God. And Gideon said, give me that mountain. And Joshua said, help yourself. And Gideon at age 85 went up to Hebron's lofty heights and took it and built his home there. When a generation said it can't be done, Caleb said, yes, it can. And he proved it to be so in Joshua 14. I think about young David when he first faced Goliath. Oh, Goliath was offended back in <coughs> excuse me, 1 Samuel in 17, oh, Goliath was offended. <clears throat> he was challenging the, he said, uh, he said, bring out a champion. Bring out a champion. Give me your best man and I'll fight him. And here comes, here comes a teenage boy, a little rosy-cheeked, cute little boy. And Goliath was insulted. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. He was a cute little rosy-cheeked boy. And Goliath got offended. And Goliath uh, uh, said, What am I, a dog? Then thou comest to me with staves? What do you think you're going to hit me like you hit a dog with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said, David, come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David Uh, said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. And Goliath said, There's no way this little runt could put a scratch on me. But he did. He severed his head from off of his body. Amen. Oh, listen, the God that helped David to take the city of Jerusalem is the same God that helped David to slay Goliath. It's the same God that helped him even as a younger lad to kill a lion and a bear. And can I tell you, the God that started you in this thing called salvation will help you in the next phase of your Christian life to grow in faith, to overcome sin, to salvage relationships. Keep on going. God's not dead. About the time you say, I'm going about as far as I can go. I can't go any further. You listen to the lies of the enemy. And they said he couldn't take Jerusalem, but he did. Said he couldn't kill Goliath, but he did. Told old Caleb he couldn't have the Anakims in the mountain up there, but he took it. I think about Second Kings 7. Turn to this one. You want to see this one. You know, it's not 
an uncommon thing for the world to mock God's people and God's servants. It's a wonderful thing to be loved and admired and appreciated. But you young men that are here among among us this morning that have given your life to serve the Lord, keep in mind that God's prophets have an unpopular message. And it's hard to be popular with an unpopular message. (laughs) And if you're faithful to preach the word of God, there will be times where folks will be offended. In 2 Kings in chapter number 7, Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord, a dignitary, a confidant of the king, a lord on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt sit with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. The Assyrians were especially cruel, and they had laid siege to the capital of Israel, the ten most northern tribes, the city of Samaria. It wasn't long until famine with all of its ghastly horror took a grip on Samaria. People walked the streets with hollowed eyes, skin clinging to their bones, people starving to death. It got so bad that Women were losing their, their own scruples, their mind, and literally boiling their children to eat the flesh of their own child. Famine was shoveling up bodies and tossing them into the grave. And there was no hope. No food and no hope. No bread. A donkey's head was sold for 80 pieces of silver. Whatever meat or whatever you could find edible on a donkey's head, if you had 80 pieces of silver, you could buy that and perhaps survive. The dung of birds was being sold. And in the middle of all this misery, Elisha, the man of God, came to visit the king and stood up and said, This time tomorrow, there will be no famine. This time tomorrow you can buy a measure of fine flour and bake some fresh bread for a single shekel. And this nobleman, confidant of the king, counselor and guide respected by many, stood by and laughed at Elisha, the man of God. He said if God himself were to open a window in the sky, such a thing is impossible. What a ridiculous prospect. You can't fool me, man of God. And Elisha looked at him and said, Sir, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you'll not get to taste of it. I wonder if this scoffer thought about the devastating effect of his words. No doubt this man, right-hand man to the king, a man who the king leaned upon. His words carried weight. They certainly carried weight in the ears of the king. 
And when this man mocked the man of God, I'm sure that some people who had found hope in Elisha's message lost their hope. Maybe that very night, a mother torn by the jaws of starvation pulling her to the grave and the natural nurturing instinct, maternal instinct, lost the battle in her mind and bowled her own baby that night. Why? Because of a scoffer. Someone who mocked God's man and his message. Today, God's word is being rationalized away. Unbelief pours from our schools and universities, from Hollywood, from the media, from entertainers and educators, from self-styled experts and politicians and religionists. God's word is scoffed at, and the Bible, Bible truth and our Savior those who believe the fundamentals of the faith and stand unapologetically for the preservation of Scripture are caricatured by much of religion, painted as a bunch of cartoon characters. In the enlightened mind of these who believe in relative truth, no absolute truth, fundamental Christianity, as you and I believe, is just a fairy tale where simple-minded, unenlightened bigots peddle false hopes and make-believe stories that are worth nothing more than a good laugh. But I got news for you. Old Goliath, his pride got the best of him too. He laughed. He mocked. He raged. You send the boy to kill me? Ha! But he did. The contemporaries of Noah got 120 years of laughs at this ridiculous spectacle in the middle of nowhere building a boat. What is wrong? That Noah's lost his mind. You old fool! Water doesn't fall from the sky! But it did. It did. May I say, dear friend, this man who fancied himself smarter than God and smarter than God's representative and mocked the message of hope that tomorrow this time the famine will be gone and with a single shekel you can bake a fresh loaf of bread. Indeed, he saw it. He saw it, and here's the sad thing. This man did not believe because he did not want to believe. It was beneath him. This man had seen the repeated validations of Elisha's ministry. He had seen and knew of and was aware of the miraculous defeat of Moab. He was aware of the Shunammite son that had been raised from the dead. He was aware of Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, whose secrets from his bedchamber were revealed to the man of God who told the king the maneuvers, the military maneuvers of the enemy. He saw when Ben-Hadad's army came to capture Elisha, how they were blinded and then how Elisha marched them right into the city of Samaria and gave them their sight back. And he was there when they fed those men and brought 20 years of peace. And this man knew Elisha was the real thing and yet he mocked on. You know why? He didn't want to believe that's why. Many who fancy themselves intellectual atheists are nothing more than emotional atheists. Who say, I don't believe... And he said, I got, I, let me tell you, you know why you don't believe? You don't want to believe. Because if there is a God, you're going to answer to that God. 
And if you have to answer to that God, you're going to have a lot to answer for. If you stand before that God, if indeed every man shall give account of himself to God, then you'll have to answer for your life and answer for rebellion and answer for your sin. And that's what makes you uncomfortable. It's a lot easier to say, well, I just don't believe in God. Well, let me tell you something, my dear friend. You can say all day long, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in hell, but they're not going away. Those lepers went out, found how God had run the Assyrian army off. They're feeding themselves and said, man, we can't stay here. They came back, told the city. They sent some uh, uh, sentries out there to see if it was a trap and not. And sure enough, they found out, hey, there is indeed food. And when word came back, there's food and there's plenty of out there. And the gates flew open. The man was trying to uh, uh, contain the crowd. All right, now everybody be careful. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then he got knocked down. And then somebody stepped on him and he screamed and cried. And another foot and another foot. And though he saw the battle, he never tasted it because he was trampled to death by the very people he disparaged. Ha. What are you talking about? Plenty of food. But there was. Just as God had said. Go with me to Job 19, would you please? Job 19. We're deep into the book of Job by this chapter. The beginning verses of the book tell us of the tragedies that came into his life. Job says in verse number 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin... Worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Can I tell you, my dear friend, a pretty influential being in the grand scheme of humanity and even pre-humanity, one of those archangels who got kicked out of heaven, the light bearer, Lucifer, was standing before God back in chapter 1. And I don't understand all that, except that I know that he's still under God's jurisdiction and he has to give an account, evidently. And so he comes to give his account. In verse number 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschewed evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made and hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? You blessed, thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is created in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. The enemy said, Job will not remain loyal to you. You, you take, you touch him. You remove that. You let me touch him. You remove that hedge about him. I can't get to him, but you remove that hedge that's about him. And you let me touch him now. And I promise you, he won't remain loyal. He won't remain loyal. He cannot remain loyal when I get done with him. But he did. But he did. Satan came. And in less than a day, a wave of grief and financial ruin overwhelmed Job and his wife as all of his children were lost. Unspeakable loss. 
all of his children, ten of them dead in one day. In one tragedy. It didn't work and God said, hey, do you consider my servant Job? And Job said, there's no way he'll remain loyal to you. You let me touch his body, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. When he's about to die, I guarantee you, he'll change his tune. God let Satan put forth his hand and touch him physically. And Job suffered ruined health. In the verses that follow immediately, his wife comes and curses. Says, why don't you curse God too and just die? His marriage is destroyed. Then his friends show up. And we drudge through chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment from his friends. And I'm fit to be tied, ready to punch somebody in the nose by the time I get to the end of Job. Because of his friends. And then Job gets to a very low place in his life. In chapter 3, verse 11, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Verse 16, Or as an, un, as an hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. Verse 20, Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto to the bitter in soul which long for death, but it cometh not and dig for it more than for hid treasures which rejoice exceeding they are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? Job is coming to a very dark place in his life. A place where he says, why would God take some and then not take others? If my life has to be so painful, why doesn't God just let me die? Why didn't let me die as soon as I was born? Why couldn't I have been miscarried? Why, why, why? And over and again, you'll read those words throughout Job. Why? With his unspeakable grief and incredible loss, the betrayal of his wife and the judgment of his friends, and now in a place of deep, deep despair. Yet Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in the last day he'll stand upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, he charged not God foolishly, the Bible said. Can I tell you something? I'm sure the devil somewhere in your life has told you the same thing. You're not going to make it. There's no way you're going to make it. Satan told that to Job, but he did. But he did. But he did. I want to make three statements this morning. Number one, there's one great sin that is the parent to all iniquity. There's one great sin that is the parent to all iniquity. And it is the sin of unbelief. Dr. Williams from this pulpit a couple of years ago said something I had never heard before. The more I meditate on him, on it, the more I believe he made a true statement. Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The more I meditate on what he said, the more I think that the the man of God knew what he's talking about. I've often thought about 
the besetting sin as being something unique to each one of us. And I think there is truth in that, that there are certain things you may struggle with and have a tendency to struggle with that others may not, and they may struggle with some sin that you don't struggle with. I do think that's true. But his point, what he said from this pulpit, is that the main teaching of that verse is when he said, the sin that does so easily beset us. It follows Hebrews chapter 11. It follows by faith Noah, by faith Joseph, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Gideon, and on and on and on, the great hall of faith. And, and the showcase of faith we read in Hebrews 11, and then we get to Hebrews 12, wherefore, tying that entire chapter to what he's getting ready to say, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. And he said, the sin that do, does so easily beset us is the lack of faith. Faith is put on display in chapter 11 and we stumble and we don't run our race effectively because of a lack of faith. And what he's saying in that verse is the sin that that so easily beset us all is indeed a lack of faith. It is the parent of every other iniquity. Charles Finney wrote a book on 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 the power of the Holy Spirit. And I have copied and printed it in a portion of my prayer uh, prayer list, journal, if you will. And similar to Oswald Smith, which I've shared with you many times, there's 19 questions in chapter 6 of his book, The Revival That We Need is so powerfully convicting. And I often use those at 27 questions or statements in Charles Finney's book. I think the title of the book is Powerful. Power from on high. Forgive me. I believe that's correct. But Charles Finney wrote on the subject of seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says in the early part of that book. The Bible says, Everyone that asketh receiveth, but there is certainly a great gulf between the asking and receiving. That is a great stumbling block to many. How then can this discrepancy be explained? That God invites us, he says, for example, he quotes from Luke where the Bible said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father, which is in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to them to ask him? And he makes the point, just like you want to do good things for your children, even more so, God wants to give you the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Why then, if he said to everyone that asks, receives, why is it that we're not walking in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit? He goes on then to list 27 things. He talks about many things, prayerlessness, selfishness, many things that hinder us from receiving what God has for us. And he gets to the end of that list and here's what he says. Now the last and greatest that hinders us from walking in the power of the Spirit is unbelief. A man prays for this endowment of power without expecting to receive it. When God said, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, quoting from 1 John 5. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. This then is the greatest sin of all. What an insult, what a blasphemy to accuse God of lying. I read that and it resonates in my soul and it pricks my heart and it helps me to, to, to with God's help for self-examination and the searching of the Spirit and the unbelief in my life. How many times... 
Have I proclaimed the truth and yet failed to live it out even in my own life? The great sin, the sin of unbelief that is the parent to all other iniquity. Statement. The parent of all iniquity. Let me explain. How can a man take God's name in vain? How can a man in a fit of anger glibly take the precious, lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a curse word upon his lips? How could a man say Jesus Christ in any way other than with adoration, love, and respect? How can he do that? He doesn't believe he'll answer to him one day. How can a man profane his God? He doesn't believe he'll answer to him one day. How can a man take a place called hell where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched? How can a man take a place like hell, a place of darkness, a bottomless pit, a place where there's gnashing of teeth and eternal torment, a place of everlasting flame, everlasting falling, Everlasting darkness, everlasting separation from God, everlasting separation from all that God is. God is love. A separation from all love, all joy, all peace. How can a man take a place such as this, the the most awful place beyond human imagination? How can a man take it and use it carelessly and use it as an exclamation point on a comment and use it as a jab to someone else, uh, to someone uh, uh, they have a beef with? I tell you how, because they don't believe. They don't believe there's a real place called hell. They don't believe that men die and burn forever. They don't believe it's a pit and a place of darkness and a place where you go and you never get out. The only way you could use such a word casually is because of unbelief. How can a man promote godless evolution that nothing exploded and became everything? Unbelief. How can a man promote moral quote-unquote, relativism, immorality, rebellion. How can a person possibly... How, how, it, 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 it's, it's almost beyond comprehension that there are people in the medical field promoting the mutilation of our children... Because of some, some idea that somehow you're a mistake and you were born in the wrong body and so let's cut off some body parts so you'll be more comfortable. How, how unconscionable, how can anyone promote such a thing, the mutilation of our children and the confusion that's being promulgated upon our children? I tell you why, because they don't believe in a creator who said he made man in his image and they don't believe one day they'll stand before God. And I submit to you this morning, my dear friend, that the greatest sin that is apparent to all other sin is the sin of unbelief. Number two, there is one great sin that limits God's mighty power in our lives. 
There's one great sin that limits God's mighty power in our lives. How is it that God's people don't have victory? How is it that the saved are born again, names in the book of life, on our way to heaven? How is it that we still struggle uh, with sin and the power of sin over us? Psalm 78, verses 41 and 42. Speaking of what we referenced earlier, Numbers 13, where the people were invited to go into the promised land. And Psalm 78 said, How oft do they provoke me in the wilderness and grieve me in the desert? They turned back, listen to it, and limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited the Holy One of Israel. In Matthew 13, 58, Jesus, as an adult man, went back to his little town of Nazareth where he was born, excuse me, where he was raised. And the Bible said that he did not many wonderful works there because of their unbelief. Here's what they said, isn't that the car- That's the carpenter's boy. We knew him when he was a kid. And now he comes back and people said he's the son of God. There ain't no son of God. That's a carpenter's boy. And the Bible said he did not many wonderful works there because of their unbelief. My dear friend, listen to me. The devil from the Garden of Eden has disparaged the word of God. He says to Eve, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree. She says, No, we're not supposed to eat it. Not even touch it or we'll die. <laughs> Thou shalt not surely die. For in the day ye eat thereof, God doth know you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. What did he do? Question and then despairs the word of God. It's an old game. He still plays it today. And he comes by and he says, yeah, you got saved. Yeah, you got baptized. Yeah, you're going to church. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now then you think you're going to live a Christian life. Yeah, I, I saw what you did last week. I saw you when you get around your friends and you was all, all bold. You was going to tell them what happened and what you do. You went right back and drank the beer with them and right back and smoked the joint with them and right back and messing around. And, and you're no different than you were. And, and, and he tells you it wasn't real and you just, it, it's, it's fake and, and now you going to be one of those fakes listen to me and God said a just man falleth yes a just man falleth yes a just man falleth again and you listen to me you look the old devil in the eye just like he said today they said to David you can't take this city but he did and just like they told David you can't kill Goliath but he did and just like they said over and over again to the Bible to God's people it can't be done they rose up and said it can be done with God's mighty help and when Satan comes to you and tries to push you down and keep you down and he says you can't get up yes you can yes you can because greater is he that send you than he that's in the world great sin that limits God's mighty power in our lives is the sin of unbelief. When we begin to listen to the enemy's lies and say, I guess it's not for me. I guess victory is not for me. I guess forgiveness is not for me. John in chapter number 3. And we'll close with this. The gospel. You're familiar with verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I said, number one, there's one great sin that's the parent to all iniquity, unbelief. There's one great sin that limits God's mighty power. There's one great sin that condemns a soul to hell. 
Because I know it is a suicide. You know why you think that? Let me just be straight with you. You think that? Because you still have it in your head. There's something you can do to save yourself and keep yourself out of hell. There's things you can do that will make uh, heaven impossible for you and things you can do to secure your place in heaven. And to that degree, you continue to trust in your own ability or your potential ability and not until you realize that Jesus Christ paid for all of our sin and every one of us deserves hell, whether we murder, commit suicide or whatever. Every one of us deserves the same hell as the next and that we're saved by the good grace of God plus nothing minus nothing. What Jesus did is our only hope. Not until then. Can you say, I know without a doubt I'm going to heaven. The sin that condemns to hell in verse number 18. It's not drunkenness. It's not suicide. It's not whatever other sin you think is so awful. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Why? Because he hath gotten drunk. Is that what it says? Because he hath gotten high on dope. Is that what it says? Because he hath taken God's name in vain. Is that what it Believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus was hanging on the cross. And they said to him in Mark, they passed by, railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah! Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the saved others. Himself he cannot save. Himself he cannot save. Oh yeah, it's real big talk. I'll tear this temple down. I'll destroy it and I'll build it in three. Oh, he's a big talk. He help them, but he can't help himself. He can't be done. We've got him now. He gave up the ghost. It is finished. Dancing around the tomb. The Bible mentions bulls. I think that's right. That's the crucifixion. And oh, how excited the imps of hell were. But about uh, 72 hours later... Something started rumbling. And a light from heaven. And the old tomb opened up and Jesus came. Don't touch me. I haven't finished my business yet. I've not yet ascended to the Father. He was on a mission. Came out of the grave with the blood. His own blood shed on Calvary's father. And he finished his test. He came back and stayed on the earth for quite a few days. Until they saw he was alive. And they touched him and saw the wounds in his hands and his side and his feet. And done. But I wasn't done. I rose up from the grave. And the gospel story is still alive and well today. And it's still the power of God under salvation. He leaveth. That blood on the mercy seat in heaven still cries out for you. Nothing you and I could do. Nothing you and I could refrain from doing. That would affect our salvation. Save one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The sin of unbelief. With its tentacles of religion. Of virtuous living Righteous, man-made righteousness. What does it come back to? I just don't want to humble myself, admit I'm lost, and believe on Christ as my only hope. That's why religious people die and go to hell.
not by works of righteousness which we have done. To whatever degree you believe in your works of righteousness as your hope for heaven, to that degree you do not believe on Jesus Christ. And until you believe on Christ and Christ alone, only then will you know you're saved. The great sin, unbelief. Do you know Christ is your Savior? Do you know heaven is your home? If you don't know, you need to get saved today. Are you born again and you know you're born again, but you're not living in victory? As the devil told you, well, that level of Christianity, that's just not for you. You'll never be a soul winner. I mean, you'll never live that kind of consecrated life. That separation thing, that's not for you. Why don't you call him out this morning? Why don't you call him the liar that he actually is? And why don't you say, God, help me to believe and trust your word. Take every promise as my own. Make me a man, a woman of faith. Would you bow your heads, please? Our heads are bowed.